I'm Meredith May. And I'm Sean Tupa. This podcast investigates the integral role that writing plays in our society and examines the unique ways that the written word helps us to gain a greater understanding of the world around us. In this episode, we're examining educational technology's next frontier, artificial intelligence and machine learning. The future is now. The future is now. (laughs) When it comes to buzzwords on 2018 education trend lists, artificial is consistently at the top. But what does this emerging technology mean for the future of education and writing instruction? Today, we're joined by two of Turnitin's resident artificial intelligence and machine learning experts so that they can help us tackle that very question. We're very pleased to welcome Stephanie Butler, Director of Product Strategy, and Elijah Mayfield, Vice President of New Technologies. Stephanie, Elijah, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Stephanie and Elijah, machine learning and artificial intelligence, these two terms we hear a lot about. Mm -hmm. To give our listeners a little bit more context, can you give us a quick summary of what we mean when we say artificial intelligence or machine learning? The common use of the term artificial intelligence in the last year or two has sort of jumped off the charts. It is much more of a buzzword now than it was a few years ago when you saw maybe a little more conservative terms like adaptive learning or personalized learning. All of a sudden now we're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence as these really big things. But fundamentally, I think what we're trying to do with these new technologies are learn from the past, uh, learn from what we've seen students do, learn from data that's been collected, and then try and make predictions about the future and simply say, you know, if we have all of this evidence that we've gathered about what works and what doesn't for individual students as well as groups of students, we should be able to make relevant predictions that help those students. And machine learning is just a set of tools that let us do that. Stephanie, do you have anything to add? Oh, I think that I think that that's just about right. I, I one thing I, I really like in terms of sort of drawing the distinction as much as you can or need to is machine learning in a lot of ways is about replicating tasks that human beings do, whether they do them well or not. And artificial intelligence is is often a lot more grandiose in terms of getting machines to to think like humans. And I think that we exist somewhere between those things when we start talking about how to support education and students uh, and finding the best ways to support their learning using these technologies. Fantastic. So I think the next question is to give our audience a little bit more of a uh, background uh, on yourselves. How, how did you become involved with machine learning and artificial intelligence? I actually got interested in this through through education. Like Elijah said, over the years, we've seen this progression from sort of traditional ways we think about education, you know, rote learning, programmatic learning, uh, one size fits all kind of content. And it sort of moved into this world of personalization, adaptive learning, and and now onto artificial intelligence. And I, I actually had sort of a front row seat to that transition because I was working in education when a lot of this was starting to happen. And I, I sort of saw the that world, the people who produce educational content for students, not really embracing the capabilities around understanding personalized learning, helping students progress their own learning. And I thought we could do better. 
So I did what anyone would do. I went to grad school. And I, I was lucky enough while I was in grad school learning about um, psychology, design, computer science, and learning sciences to meet Elijah, who was sort of thinking about the same problem. How do we leverage technology to help in this personalized learning space? He was sort of the one who, who really got me excited about it. He should tell his story. <laughs> sure. I met Stephanie right after I left Carnegie Mellon, actually, uh, where I spent four years in grad school doing research in the Language Technologies Institute, where we focused on natural language processing, a lot of work on speech, machine translation. Um, my focus in particular was on text uh, and looking at how students interact with one another in small group tutoring sessions, how doctors and patients interact in clinical settings how teachers and students communicate and collaborate, how support groups work together in a, in a healthcare setting, and really tried to build uh, as much understanding as I could of the gap between the work that's going on at the top universities in AI and machine learning and the practitioners that are actually out there doing work uh, at hospitals, schools, and in the community where the tools that are you know, being built at the state of the art don't necessarily have those applications in mind. There's this huge cavernous gap between the two. And education is the place where I spent the most time and really recognized that there was uh, the largest gap that I could see that I, I felt like I could make a difference around, particularly on the topic of writing. Uh, in 2012, when I first started looking at writing in an educational context, the gap between what I was publishing and what my peers were publishing in research uh, and what was being used in the, the larger companies that were working on these problems uh, was many years. Um, it was probably more than a decade of, of sort of lag between what people were doing in academia and what was going into classrooms. And the work that was going on in classrooms didn't look like it was necessarily taking advantage of the machine learning in ways that were really student-centered um, and that were focused on helping students improve their areas of focus, their practice, their sort of self-efficacy and confidence. Uh, instead, there was a lot of work on, you know, using machine learning to automate, to speed things up, to sort of remove people from the equation. And that wasn't where I thought there was the most opportunity. And so when Stephanie and I started working together now about five years ago, we both really dove into the question of where are the opportunities for this technology to really have an impact and how can we make that really classroom centered and really focused on being put into places where we can be useful and, and really help people out. Um, and that's been our work now for, for several years. I think that one of the really exciting things about how we've sort of approached machine learning and artificial intelligence to Elijah's point is a lot of what I saw when I was in, in grad school, you know, working on human computer interaction around education was was this idea of sort of optimization, find, you know, find ways to make things faster and easier. That is incredibly valuable, of course, because one thing there's never enough of in the classroom is time. But it was really exciting and interesting to kind of take on this challenge of what else could we do? How else could the predictive nature of machine intelligence actually have 
an, uh, an impact on how a student might approach their own learning or feel engaged with what's going on in the classroom and how could it equally engage the teacher and student with one another. That So that was, I think, something that was really uh, different about the way we were approaching machine intelligence in the early stages. Yeah, Elijah said that, you know, the earlier technologies were trying to take the human out of the equation. It mm -hmm. sounds like you were using the equations to bring the human into it. Bringing the human interaction back in, yep. Yep, and, and bringing people together. And w which leads me to my next question, which, which is, if you could talk about Lightside Labs a little bit and, and the transition from a, the great idea, the theory mm -hmm. behind this, to a functioning product. Yeah, I think if you look to the, the dialogue that's going on in education around automated essay scoring in 2012, 2013, so much of it was focused on very large-scale high-stakes testing uh, and the use of machine learning to plow through 100,000, 200,000, even a million essays at times, which is an extraordinarily expensive task. Um, it's laborious, it's inefficient, it's not great teaching practice in a lot of cases because there are just so many students to work with that you can't really give meaningful feedback to those students. And so all of the conversation in those years was really focused on trying to make that process not so expensive, not so time consuming and not such a distraction for teachers. As a result, you saw these companies building tools that could pretty reliably give an essay a number score on a one to four or one to six scale and, and sort of spit that out very quickly and pretty reliably. Uh, and you can turn through thousands of these essays very fast. The, the real insight that Lightside Labs had in 2013 and 2014 and that Stephanie and I worked on was if we have the ability to evaluate essays so quickly, putting at the end of the pipeline and saying that we're only going to do this in a summative high stakes setting uh, and only for the sake of speeding it up and making it cheaper, feels like a wasted opportunity, especially when there are so many students that are not getting the chance to practice writing uh, and get feedback, when there are so many teachers that are sort of overwhelmed with the premise of assigning more than a handful of essays throughout an entire school year, because it just means that they're going to get in work from students that didn't go through as much revision as it could have. It's going to dominate their evenings and weekends trying to get as much feedback as they can, and they're still going to feel like they're barely treading water. But if you have a tool that can give students feedback immediately and at their own pace, where the students can ask for this evaluation and then immediately go into their second, their third, their fourth draft, we thought there might be an opportunity to really change the work style of writing in, in the classroom and give students an opportunity to feel good about the work they're submitting because they already saw from their multiple drafts and their revisions and their improvement over time that they can make progress. This is something that's under their control. It's not just a lost cause. And take out some of the fear of working on your essay assignment, not knowing how you're doing, not knowing how you're ever going to get it done, and, and making it so that by the time the student and the teacher are working together, they're coming at it from a, a much more collaborative standpoint where the student is ready to have a deeper and richer conversation with their teacher and the teacher can really hit the ground running in that conversation with them. And I would say that it was really important to us and the, the way that we kind of came to those conclusions was not that we intuitively knew that putting uh, 
automated feedback into the classroom would do all of these things. It, it took a lot of experimentation, a lot of iteration, um, a lot of listening to teachers, listening to students, being in classrooms. We spent a long time sitting in classrooms, sort of steeping ourselves in the practice of writing as it exists today and and putting the technology in and and seeing what happened. And I think that it was pretty incredible to find out that what happens is you get students who own their work more, that they are encouraged, that they have more efficacy around their own learning and that teachers are empowered to have better, deeper conversations with their students. And it turns out that for a lot of teachers, that's really what they yearn for. They want to have those meaningful, teachable moments with the with their class as a whole, with their entire student body, but also one-on-one, -on -one, individually. And by having something that has allowed the students to do more independent thinking, to bring deeper questions to the teacher, for the teacher to have that additional information around all the work the student did at their fingertips in order to have that conversation, turns out to be something powerful and really positive in the in the classroom. Have, have either of you seen other ways that artificial intelligence is being used in educational settings? We see a lot of adaptive learning options out there in the world. And this is something that a lot of companies are really starting to, to see as important in their educational offerings. We see companies that provide the same reading content at multiple reading levels so that every student in a classroom can read about the same topic even if there's vast differences in the skills of each student, which comes out, clearly comes back to sort of equity and making sure that everyone is getting the education they they need and, and richly deserve. And there is, there's machine intelligence behind providing that sort of content. We've also started to see learning management systems and other platforms inject algorithms to help instructors or administrators identify which students might be struggling in their coursework, which is really important when you get into the sort of higher grade levels or into college where there are fewer check-ins, where there's a lot more independent work. It can be very easy for students to sort of fall by the wayside. And the more that of the sort of behavioral monitoring, you might call it, comes into play, the, the more vectors an instructor has to identify those students. So I think that can be pretty powerful in some ways. We also see a lot of stuff focused on outcomes, predicting outcomes, that's really important. And then of course, there's the personal educational technologies, mm -hmm. things like language learning software that adapts to how quickly you learn new vocabulary words or new grammar rules of a new language and can sort of, can accelerate your learning if you're learning quickly or remediate you if you're having trouble with a particular field. Yeah, I think, you know, anywhere in education where there are a lot of decisions being made, especially when it's rapid decisions about what to do next to keep a student focused on task, keep a student excited about their work and feeling like they're learning something new, um, but not feel like they're hitting a wall, there's a machine learning application that could come out of that. There's a place where you could insert a tool, and there's lots of companies that are trying to do this with their own application. 
their own textbook, their own curriculum, because what you want to be able to do at each of those points is look back at the history of what you know about this student, look at what you've seen from all the other students that you've worked with, which in the case of many of these algorithmic products can be thousands or even hundreds of thousands of students, and then say, we really feel like we know what the next thing that the student should be working on is. That's particularly important when the students are working in a more sort of independent way and the student isn't sitting in the same sequence of material uh, as every other student in their class. And so I think that there's a place for technology, particularly in those settings where the students are sort of more autodidactic and working independently. Where we've spent more of our time is in the setting where the teacher has more control over what's being taught, where the teacher is being maybe a little more intentional about the work that the students are doing and choosing what content to teach in what order. And at that point, it's just a matter of making sure that when a teacher does give out an assignment, that the student's spending enough time on it. And that when we can see an opportunity where the student might walk away, even though there's more to learn or where they're not getting in quite as much practice as, as they might otherwise, is there anything that we can do based on what the algorithm has seen in the past that encourages them and just keeps them going uh, and, and makes learning less of a slog? The other powerful element we see in foca focusing on that sort of classroom level learning objective where the teacher is being intentional is that at some point you do need to understand where where your students are. Are they progressing, you know, in a formative sense through all of the different skills, particularly in writing, that that you need them to so that by the end of the year they're prepared for the, the next year coming after. And we, there's a lot of power in being able to provide those check-ins the way that revision assistant does and quickly allow the teacher to assess where their students are uh, and to put, the, put them on those individual learning paths if they need to be or small group differentiated paths. And I think that that's something that we're really only beginning to see how that's going to change uh, and hopefully improve the classroom, that access to fast, differentiated data that can really help you tailor the classroom experience to each student and make sure that they're each getting that learning and reaching that next level uh, that they need to. I'm, I'm now going to ask the, the question, the, 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 the stickler, of, if you will, uh, and, and that is, should people be concerned about artificial intelligence replacing teachers? And if so, why, or why should they actually embrace artificial intelligence, which, you know, obviously I'm, I'm leading with a little bit of bias there, but... Is this Skynet or the Terminator? Is it Skynet or the Terminator? It's, that's what yes. everybody wonders about that's, whatever that's you great, say artificial intelligence. Right, Sean. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what's so, so what constantly you, on my mind. What do you guys think about about that? that and I'm, I'm sure you've heard that question before as well, given your expertise and your experience. Stephanie, do you want to be the first to say no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, no. I... I <laughs> It's it's an important question, and there is a lot of concern and a lot of, uh, you know, is it Skynet or is it the Terminator? I think it's exactly the right way to put it, John. And the answer, I think, is no, people should not be fearful about artificial intelligence replacing teachers. You know, there are so many things in an education that are not 
the specific uh, math problems you do or history papers that you write or, you know, presentations that you make. It's imperative in, in the modern world that education also be about critical thinking, social and emotional intelligence, integrity, judgment. We see the need to be able to understand what is real information versus fake information, digital literacy. All of those things take people. Mm -hmm. They take the the interaction between a mentor or a teacher and educator, whatever label you want to put on it, you know, those things are as much, if not more, a part of education than than the the, the work product that students do. So what I would really love is to give teachers the opportunities to really spend their time on that. And I think that machine intelligence is great at structure and content that we need to help students succeed academically, but there's a lot more to a holistic education. We, we absolutely need, we need teachers uh, to do all of that. So uh, Terminator is my answer. <laughs> I think, one of the interesting places where the conversation can move and in some applications has moved is towards expanding access. Mm. Because if you think about the current classroom setting in, in education, it, it's just not realistic for a lot of reasons that it would even be beneficial at all, much less viable um, to replace teachers or really move into a, a setting where the students are working totally on their own with just the technology supporting them. But if you go beyond the classroom to students, you know, of, of any age, from really young kids all the way through to working adults, in places where learning is less structured, in places where school settings don't try to have a huge impact right now, and I'm thinking of things like language learning, especially in, in Asia and Latin America, even in America in a lot of places, in, in the United States, where people aren't necessarily getting the support that they need to build up language proficiency in a second or third language. And tutors are wildly difficult to find, difficult to build a rapport with, and also expensive and out of the sort of financial ability to, to afford of a lot of these people. There are tools in language learning that are using artificial intelligence to help those students get some practice that they wouldn't be able to get today at all, and the schools aren't set up to help them. And so that's just an expansion of what people can be learning. You also see that in workforce skills work and people that are trying to change careers where there are artificial intelligence tools that are trying to support them because again you don't want to ask everyone that wants to make a career change to go back and spend multiple more years in college there are a lot of trade-offs in those situations uh, where you need to ask are we expanding access in a way that helps people is there a path for them to sort of get the credentials, get the prestige? Certainly because of the ability of new technology to give people those initial opportunities, we're seeing more chances to learn, more chances to uh, build up skills on your own um, well beyond the walls of the classroom. Now, whether you want to then try and turn around and take the learnings from those tools and pull them back into an education setting that's more formal, something that fits more into uh, what you see in high schools or universities, I think that you know there's been mixed success in those cases. And in some cases, the applications that have tried to take the personalized work and then put it into a classroom might have had some impact. But in a lot of cases, 
what people have realized is that actually teachers are really important. And the relationship between teachers and students uh, is one of the most important ingredients. And the tools that you build using artificial intelligence or machine learning really needs to supplement that. And it can't replace it. And if you try to, you're likely going to fail. I think an interesting application of artificial intelligence that, to my knowledge, has not been pursued, at least not aggressively, is to find a way to sort of solve both of these problems at once. If there are no if there are no teachers, if there is no access to a good education, having these independent learning tools is incredibly impactful. What if we could take those tools and start to enable people to become teachers? You know, is there a way if if artificial intelligence and machine learning are replicating the best practices of a good teacher instructionally, is there a way that we can sort of turn that on its side and help build more teachers so that you start to have this virtuous cycle of people learning independently and then being able to teach others, building up their skills, building up the bona fides and and having sort of more equitable distributed education across the world. So Stephanie, it's about educators, how, how could they possibly leverage artificial intelligence to help improve their teaching practices and, and, and enhance what they're doing in the classroom? One thing that artificial intelligence or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, uh, can do is deliver information very quickly to a teacher. So one way that teachers can leverage artificial intelligence is to use the information they're getting about their students, either how this cohort of students compares to prior years or how the students compare individually within a cohort, they can start to to identify where the students are doing well, where they're having success, where they are not having success, and they can sort of quickly pivot their instruction to, to help students where they're, they're weak, I would hope that teachers would start to be able to find the approaches and the practices that they are using and really evaluate them and see how their practices are matching up with student performance. And the more data you can collect, the more you can see how your students' performance is changing from year to year to year, the more you can start to evaluate those practices and try new things, try repeating the same thing over again and seeing if you get the same results. I think in the long term, you can have a more objective view of which of your which things are working well in your classroom. I think an important thing to remember in that conversation about where can teachers improve their teaching with AI is that they're not going to be the ones in general writing the algorithms, building the training data, building the apps that use AI. They're going to have to be judging the merits of sort of an endless array of different ed tech products that all claim to use AI to improve their teaching for them. Mm-hmm. And what is going to be really important in 2018, uh, it already was important in the past years and it will be more important in the future, is that teachers look at what's being advertised on those products and really think through whether they can draw a straight line between what is being promised by the artificial intelligence on the box 
and, and what they understand about their classroom. And can they see the, the company, the product, the, the app, explaining to them why their classroom is going to be different. If it's just an adaptive learning product without much connection to, to teaching practice, and it simply says that because there's adaptive learning and AI in the box, you'll be a better teacher, but there's no connection between the two. There's no relationship between the research that goes into the, the technology and the, the pedagogy or the curriculum of the product. It's going to be a really tough sell. It's going to be easy for teachers to say, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. And if they feel that way, they're probably right. And they should probably trust their gut. On the other hand, if an AI product or a product that's using machine learning in some way can explain the changes in behavior that they expect to see, uh, the way that students are interacting with their work differently, the way that teachers can get more information, uh, ideally with something that they can then immediately turn around and use, the way that teachers can get new information in an outcome spreadsheet or a dashboard or whatever else. If the teachers can really feel how they would use that tool it's going to be clear to them that that's going to add value. I think that the most important thing for teachers is just to keep an open mind, but then be really thoughtful as you look at a new app and say, I get it, I'm excited to try this out, and I wanna see it in my classroom. How can student privacy and intellectual rights be protected while encouraging these technologies to develop and learn? I think a lot of the responsibility there is on the companies to use data responsibly mm -hmm. and to think about how they're building their databases, what permissions they're giving out to their employees, certainly what vendors they're using or what third parties they're working with. It is really crucial that we don't put the onus of this on the teachers or on the students all of the time, because fundamentally the people that are making poor decisions around the use of data are often the companies that are just running wild. The right answer is often to say, we actually don't need to gather that information. We don't need to be uh, storing this data if it's not directly connected to the pedagogy and the learning uh, that we want to see happening in our app. And so I think that a lot of companies could be more responsible than they are now about that data and the way that they use data collection if they just took a step back and were thoughtful about the, the, the work that they do. All right, Elijah, Stephanie crystal ball time. What, what are your nice and accurate prophecies about artificial intelligence and what it looks like in the classroom in, let's say, five years, 10 years, go as far out as you want? Stephanie, how's your crystal ball? Oh, well, it's a little foggy, but I'll, I'll do my best. So I think the first thing that you'll see is artificial intelligence and machine learning are not going away. They will only become sort of more important to the way that ed tech companies view and build their products. People will hopefully come to understand what artificial intelligence is capable of and what it's not capable of and will continue to have that conversation as it as it evolves. I think you'll also start to see more and more uses of artificial intelligence that push the boundaries of prediction. I think that we really focus on that because, as Elijah said at the beginning of this podcast, that's, that's what artificial intelligence can do really well. 
But I think we're going to start to see more emphasis on learning. How is artificial intelligence improving student learning, not just improving sort of the outcomes? How quickly did we predict that this student was going to pass or not pass? It will become much more about learning. I also would hope that artificial intelligence sort of comes off the screen, um, moves out of that sort of autodidactic framework that Elijah spoke of earlier, that we are able to use it to encourage students to work together, to learn from each other, to participate in learning communities, and that we can support critical thinking, um, support engagement with the world through artificial intelligence. Now, how are we gonna do that? I don't know, that's why I stay in this space. Those are the things I would like to see. How we get there, I'm not 100% sure. I think if you look back five years ago, a lot of people working on machine learning in the education space believed that they could treat it as a standalone problem. And they could build it almost as a black box where you put in new content and you get out new outcomes or new results. And you could swap in and out new content. And you could change subject areas, you could change age groups, you could change communities that you're working in. And the same basic principle would keep applying over and over in all these different areas. Now seeing that that's typically not the case. And it's not the case in a couple of different ways. For one thing, the type of machine learning that you should be using by subject area often varies. So the, the tools that you build for math are different from the tools you would build for writing. Uh, and it just doesn't work to swap one in for the other. It also is true that as you go across regions to different countries, to different languages, to different communities, the expectations of the students, of the teachers, of the administrators are very different. And if you just try to build a single machine learning tool that'll work the same in Southeast Asia that it does in Nebraska, you're going to be really unpleasantly surprised when you actually go into the classroom and listen to the teachers and see whether it's working for them. And so a lot more direct thinking about what AI am I building for this community? How does it affect the teachers that I've spoken to in the room with me? in that community? And what should I take back to my team, my collaborators, my coworkers, to try and help that group is going to be more important because those are the types of applications that are going to get it right and are going to go really deep in on specific problems for specific subject areas and groups of people um, and be able to help them really solve their problems and then change the work that you do. Really build something new, build something valuable for a new community when you move. And, and as long as the people that are working in machine learning can keep that connection with the people that are actually using their work on, in the classroom, then I think you're going to see a lot of success. Uh, whereas the ones that are more divorced from that and are several steps away from their users are really going to struggle over the next five years and are going probably to hit a plateau where they actually aren't sure where their next set of value is going to come from because uh, other people will outpace them by having that closer connection. And I would I would add to that, I would love to see an even deeper connection between the people building products for the classroom and the classrooms themselves. Uh, I, I want to see teachers actively participating in the conversation around what what does my community need? What does my domain need? How can technology support that? And I think that it's important to bring all sides to the table when 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 you're creating um, products like these because they can they can be so powerful but they 
they do need to be adaptive, not just to an individual student, but to a group. And making sure that that happens is also about engaging the people from that group in the process. And with that, thank you to <laughs> Stephanie and Elijah for joining us today and, ha- and answering our, our plethora of questions. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I think we're both very happy to be here. The Written Word is sponsored by Turnitin. It's hosted by Meredith May and Sean Tupa. This episode was written by Peter Kerr and Amanda Zelligtan. Produced by Sam Swink. Creative direction by Sebastian Caceres. Illustrations by Lydia Ortiz. Music by Gianni Izzo. Many thanks to our special guests, Stephanie Butler and Elijah Mayfield. 